Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 41. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We're wrapping up our discussion of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and we are discussing what evidence there is that these appearances were bodily and physical appearances. And last time we looked at two indications from the Apostle Paul that the resurrection appearances were physical and bodily. First, we saw that Paul's doctrine of the resurrection body is that the resurrection body is indeed a physical body. And therefore, when he says that this uh, entity appeared to people, that would mean that they saw a physical, uh, tangible body. Secondly, Paul, and indeed all the New Testament, make a conceptual distinction between a resurrection appearance of Jesus and a vision of Jesus. And the only way that I can make sense of this distinction is that the resurrection appearances were extra-mental. That is to say, they took place in the external world, whereas visions of the exalted Jesus were purely intra-mental. Even if caused by God, they were simply in the mind of the beholder. And that would again imply that given that these are post-mortem appearances of Jesus rather than mere visions, that these were physical bodily appearances. Now we want to turn to what evidence there exists in the Gospels that these appearances are physical and bodily. Again, two points, I think, should be made. First, every resurrection appearance related in the Gospels is a physical, bodily appearance. The unanimous testimony of the Gospels in this respect is really pretty impressive. Think about it. If none of the original appearances were physical and bodily, then it's very strange that we should have a completely unanimous testimony in the Gospels that all of them were physical, with no trace whatsoever of the original non-physical visionary appearances. So thorough a corruption of oral tradition in such a short time, while the eyewitnesses were still alive, is very unlikely. Secondly, if all the appearances were originally non-physical visions, then one is at a loss to explain the rise of the gospel accounts. If originally the disciples merely experienced uh, visionary seeings of Jesus, then you're at a complete loss to explain the rise of these gospel appearance narratives. For physical bodily appearances would be foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews, since neither of them could accept, for different reasons, the notion of a physical resurrection from the dead. But both Jews and Gentiles would be quite happy to accept uh, non-physical visions of 
the deceased. Now, some critics have suggested that it might be anti-docetic motives that prompted the materialization of these originally visionary experiences. The docetists were early heretics who um, depreciated the value of the material and so denied the incarnation of Jesus. They said Jesus merely appeared to have taken on a fleshly body, but in fact he really didn't have a body of flesh. And so some critics have said maybe the resurrection appearance stories materialized these visionary experiences as a way of responding to the threat of docetism. But I think this suggestion has little to commend it. Um, in the first place, docetism was a later Christian heresy, and these appearance traditions antedate docetism. In fact, docetism is a response to the physical incarnation uh, and resurrection of Jesus, not the other way around. Moreover, the docetists didn't, in fact, deny um, that Jesus appeared in a bodily and physical way. They did not affirm purely visionary uh, resurrection appearances. They denied the incarnation, but once Jesus took on the semblance of human flesh, they didn't deny that he also appeared bodily alive from the dead. They didn't believe in visions. And finally, the gospel accounts don't evince the rigor of an anti-docetic apologetic. One would have to do more to refute the docetists than to have Jesus merely show his wounds, as he does to Thomas and the disciples. Uh, notice it never says that Thomas uh, accepted Jesus' offer to reach forth his hand and touch the wounds or probe his side. Jesus merely shows his wounds to Thomas, and Thomas believes. That's not an anti-docetic apologetic, because that wouldn't refute docetism merely showing the wounds. And so I don't think that the resurrection appearance stories can be uh, attributed to anti-docetic motives. To be perfectly candid, the only reason for denying the physical and bodily nature of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus is philosophical, not historical. If Jesus did appear physically and bodily, then these sorts of appearances would be nature miracles of the most astounding proportions, and that many skeptical critics simply cannot accept. But in that case, the problem is not historical, it's philosophical, and so you need to retrace your steps and go back and review the arguments for the existence of God. Um, as Peter Slezak remarked in his debate with me, uh, if God exists and created the entire universe, then the odd resurrection would be child's play. So the real question here is whether or not uh, a transcendent creator and designer of the universe exists, and we've seen good evidence uh, for such a being. Most New Testament critics, however, are untrained in philosophy 
and therefore um, naive when it comes to issues like arguments for the existence of God or the problem of miracles. So on the basis of these three lines of evidence, then I think we can conclude that the fact of Jesus' post-mortem appearances to various individuals and groups of people under a variety of circumstances is firmly established historically, and moreover, I think it is plausible that these appearances were physical and bodily in nature. Well, then we have seen uh, evidence to affirm that after his death, Jesus, in fact, appeared alive uh, to various individuals and groups on a variety of occasions and under different circumstances. We've now looked at the evidence for the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after his crucifixion. Moreover, we've seen that there is good evidence to believe that after his crucifixion, various individuals and groups of people, some of whom are named, um, experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. The third fact, which any uh, adequate historical hypothesis must account for, is then the very origin of the Christian faith itself. This fact takes pride of place in N.T. Wright's um, historical argument for Jesus' resurrection. Indeed, Wright's entire book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, an 800-page tome, is probably best understood as the most sophisticated and fullest development of this third point of the overall case. In fact, Wright actually argues for the historicity of the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances on the basis of this third point, namely the very origin of the Christian faith. I think this procedure, however, is mistaken because then it makes the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances dependent upon this third point, when in fact we have independent evidence, as we've seen, and as most critics agree, for the facts of the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances. So it's best to regard these three facts as independently established, like three legs of a stool, which all lend support to the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Nevertheless, Wright's book, I think, um, does serve to draw attention to the power of this third point. Uh, how do you explain the origin of the Christian movement midway through the first century? Even skeptical New Testament scholars admit that the earliest disciples of Jesus at least believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Indeed, they pinned nearly everything on it. To take just one example, their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Jews had no conception of a Messiah who, instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies, would be shamefully executed by them as a common criminal. Messiah was supposed to be a triumphant figure who would command the respect of Jew and Gentile alike and who would establish the throne of David in Jerusalem from which he would reign. A Messiah who failed to deliver and who was defeated, 
humiliated and slain by his enemies is a contradiction in terms. Nowhere do the Jewish texts speak of such a quote-unquote Messiah. Therefore, as N.T. Wright emphasizes, and I quote, the crucifixion of Jesus, understood from the point of view of any onlooker, whether sympathetic or not, was bound to have appeared as the complete destruction of any messianic pretensions or possibilities he or his followers might have hinted at, end quote. It's difficult, therefore, to overemphasize what a catastrophe the crucifixion was for the disciples. Jesus' death on the cross spelled the humiliating end for any hopes that they had entertained that he was the promised Messiah. But the belief in the resurrection of Jesus reversed the catastrophe of the cross. Because God had raised Jesus from the dead, he was seen to be the Messiah after all. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 36, Acts 2, 23 and 36, Peter proclaims, This man God raised again. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. It was on the basis of his resurrection that the disciples could believe that Jesus really was the Messiah after all. It's no surprise, therefore, that belief in Jesus' resurrection was universal in the early Christian church. The German scholar Günter Bornkamm sums it up as follows, and I quote, the Easter faith of the first disciples was not the peculiar experience of a few enthusiasts or a peculiar theological opinion of a few apostles who in the course of time had the luck to prevail. No, they were all one in the belief and confession to the risen one. Now, some critics have tried to avoid this conclusion by maintaining with Rudolf Boltmann that the earliest disciples did not distinguish between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. The primitive Christian proclamation, they say, was Jesus' exaltation to heaven. God has exalted him to his right hand. And later, this became differentiated between his resurrection and his ascension. So, in effect, the primitive, the original Christian belief was not in Jesus' resurrection. Rather, the original Christian belief was simply in Jesus' exaltation into heaven, and therefore there's nothing to be explained beyond their belief that Jesus had been exalted by God to heaven. N.T. Wright is very critical of Boltmann's suggestion, and I want to read an extended quotation from N.T. Wright in response to Boltmann's objection. This is what Wright says. The idea that there was originally 
no difference for the earliest Christians between resurrection and exaltation or ascension is a 20th century fiction based on a misreading of Paul. Actually, Boltmann's account is slippery at the crucial point. Though he says that there was no difference between resurrection and ascension, what he means is that there was no early belief in resurrection at all, since the word resurrection and its cognates was not used to denote a non-bodily extension of life in a heavenly realm, however glorious. Plenty of words existed to denote heavenly exaltation, and resurrection is never one of them. Boltmann has therefore to postulate, though he has covered up this large move, that at some point halfway through the first century, someone who had previously believed that Jesus had simply gone to heaven when he died, began to use, to denote this belief, language which had never meant that before and continued not to mean it in either paganism, Judaism, or Christianity. Thereafter, namely, the language of resurrection. What is more, Boltmann has to assume that though this theory about a risen body was a new thing within the already widely diverse Christian church, it took over almost at once so that all traces of the original view that Jesus was not raised from the dead but simply went to heaven, albeit in an exalted capacity, have dropped out of historical sight." End quote. Given the date, for example, of the tradition quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, which you'll recall goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion, Boltmann's hypothesis uh, threatens to collapse into the conspiracy theory of 18th century deists who said that the disciples lied about the resurrection of Jesus, which would be, I think, the reductio ad absurdum of this view, its reduction to absurdity. Resurrection, which the evidence shows to be the primitive Christian belief, entails exaltation. Jesus rises glorified from the tomb. So resurrection entails exaltation, and given that Jesus is no longer present among us, therefore it entails ascension into heaven. But a reverse extrapolation from exaltation to physical resurrection and ascension does not follow from the concept of exaltation. So while it's easy to see how a primitive belief in Jesus' resurrection would lead to his exaltation to heaven, it doesn't make any sense at all to say that the original primitive belief was exaltation and that this later somehow became distorted into belief in his resurrection, a hypothesis that the early date of the traditions in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 will not permit in any case. So. The origin of Christianity thus hinges upon the belief of the earliest disciples that God had raised 
Jesus from the dead. But then the question arises, how does one explain the origin of that belief? As R.H. Fuller has said, even the most skeptical critic must posit some mysterious X to get the movement going. But what was that X? Any question, then, about the fact of the origin of the Christian faith in the belief of these earliest disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead? That's the fact that needs to be explained. Yes, we have a question down here. And while you ask the question, I'm going to get the next page of my notes. Um, so the anti-missionary uh, Rabbi Michael Skoback, he says, um, it wasn't their belief in the resurrection that created their devotion to Jesus. It was the other way around. It was their incredible devotion to Jesus that led to their belief that he was resurrected. Yeah. So they, he's arguing that, he's saying, um, let, the bed, let the dead bury their own dead. They were so, uh, he says that, um, follow him without question. So they were so devoted to him. So after he died, they uh, wanted to continue the movement. So any piece of evidence would convince them if, the if um, someone else stole the body from the tomb. Yeah. They're like, okay, he rose from the dead. I, this is not a denial of the fact that the origin of the Christian faith owes itself to the belief of these earliest disciples that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's an attempt to explain that fact, right? They came to, to believe in this because of their fervent faith in Jesus that led them than to believe he was raised from the dead. So that's to be considered later on. Remember the structure of our case. First you establish the facts to be explained, and then the second stage is to ask what is the best explanation of those facts. So what you just said is getting ahead to the second stage. It doesn't deny the fact to be explained, namely that Christianity owes its origin to the belief of these first disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. It tries to provide a psychological explanation of that. Now, just by way of preview, let me say I think what I've already said shows why this view is no longer accepted by the majority of New Testament scholars today. This used to be the view back in the 30s and 40s, the heyday of Boltmann. Instead, what the scholars have come to realize is that given first century beliefs about the Messiah and what Messiah was, so, was supposed to be like, the crucifixion would have annihilated any hopes that Jesus was the Messiah, would have annihilated the faith that the disciples had in him. So their belief in his resurrection can't be explained as a result of their fervent faith in him. It's quite the opposite. It's because they came to believe that he was raised from the dead that they then could put their faith in him. So this scenario gets the cart before the horse. It is precisely um, the reverse situation. You can't explain their belief in the resurrection on the basis of their fervent faith because that fervent faith was or would have been completely undermined by the fact of his crucifixion. Okay, other comments? So do you think that Peter, James, John, all the other apostles, the earliest disciples, 
during that, after Christ's uh, death on the cross, do you think that they were the mindset that, oh, well, I guess we were wrong. He must not have been the Messiah after all until the resurrection happened, and then, which then convinced them that indeed he was? I think that they would have been thrown into deep depression and doubt as a result. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they came to renounce Jesus or anything of that sort, but I, I, I do think that they would have been thrown into deep despair, depression, and doubt about everything that had happened. They had left their families, their livelihoods, to follow this man because they thought he was a messiah. And here he got crucified by the Gentiles. I mean, this is just the opposite of what the messiah is supposed to be like. So they would have been in deep doubt, I think, at this point. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bob. Bill. I think if the disciples perhaps had known their Bible a little bit better, they wouldn't have been so depressed. The, the majority of Messianic prophecies are indeed of a triumphant Messiah, but there is a, a very important minority of them which present a suffering Messiah and leads to the salvation. The two most famous probably, of course, is the well-known Isaiah 53. It says, by uh, his stripes we are healed and the suffering that he had. And I don't think anybody would much doubt that that was messianic. They, they, well, now that's where I would disagree with you, Bob. I, I think that that uh, would not have been regarded as messianic. The person who is described in Isaiah 53 is the servant of the Lord. He's the righteous servant of the Lord who then uh, bears substitutionally the punishment for Israel's sins. And these kinds of passages, I think, when viewed in retrospect, would be seen as pregnant with significance. Just as you say, they would, they would see Joseph of Arimathea in the passage when it says they made his grave with the rich. Um, they would see his resurrection when it says uh, he will prolong his days. But you've got to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew uh, Without any knowledge of Christian history, you can't look at these passages in the rearview mirror of Christian history. You've got to look at them as first century Jews would have. And there isn't any evidence that this was interpreted messianically. Remember, we talked about this yeah, before, where you so. shared with me some rabbinic interpretations, and those were all post-Christian. Well, I think we'll just have to agree to disagree on that because All when right. he says he was cut off from the land of the living, I mean, let's face it, that's what. And here's another one, and that is Daniel 9.27, which I think is the most remarkable prophecy in the Bible of, of Daniel 77. And in 9.27, he says, this anointed one will appear and will be cut off and have nothing. Yes. Okay, now that was in 530 B.C., and there, I don't think there's any question there, the anointed one is, yes. is the Messiah, and he's going to be cut off and have nothing. Now, what, yeah. what does that mean? Now, right. I'll admit there were a minority of prophecies, and we can, give, we can cut the rabbis a little slack for saying, well, wait a minute, this man was killed, and so maybe he's not. But I think Jesus himself was put out with the rabbis and the teachers of the law of his day because he thought that they should have known that based on these prophecies. He, you know, he gave the thing, he says, you can, you can uh, prophesy the weather by certain signs, but you can't read the signs of the times. Yes. And I think in that case, he may well, well have been I, I understand. You're, certainly Jesus did think that his suffering and 
messianic status was attested in these Old Testament prophecies. But the very fact that the Jewish scribes, who are experts in these matters, didn't see it, again, suggests that the, this is rather obscure. It, it could be seen in retrospect, right, but to see those passages in, in a prospective view would be much more difficult. And so I think we need to give these disciples some slack here in, in their fear and doubt and so forth. Okay, Taiwan. Uh, Dr. Craig, we have uh, studied the Bible for the purpose of following Christ and identify with him. And this resurrection <clears throat> knowledge <clears throat> at its best leads all the disciples to uh, being willing to be martyred. And, and then that's the end of our following. And I don't that's understand the, end of what? the following. Uh-huh to be willing to be martyred. Uh -huh. and, and from then on, I don't understand how to apply this resurrection understanding in our application of uh, faith following. All right, now I'm not sure I understand the question, Taiwan, but in my book, The Sun Rises, which is about the historical evidence for the resurrection, I have a closing chapter that is on the question, what does the resurrection mean today for us? And I draw out about seven implications of this that I think are highly significant, such as it ratifies the work of the cross. It tells us that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for our sins was accepted by God, and therefore we are redeemed. It gives us hope of eternal life. It tells us that the grave is not the end, but that we shall live forever, and therefore our work for the Lord and our lives and relationships in this life are meaningful and of eternal value. It holds promise for complete physical and psychological healing uh, from diseases to infirmities and birth defects and all the horrible shortcomings that we bear in this life to psychological inferiority complexes and other mental illnesses, all of these will be done away with by the resurrection when we will have glorious resurrection bodies and be utterly free from sin. So th those are just some of the applications of the fact of the resurrection. It, it is a doctrine which is just pregnant with theological significance and hope, I believe, for us. But at this time, we're just looking at the dry facts, so to speak. We, we want to make sure that this hope is not pie in the sky, but that rather this is a hope that is firmly grounded in the facts of history. And so that's why we're spending this time on this um, very historical analysis of the resurrection. I think we have time for one more question, so we'll take Bruce's and then we'll close. Uh, well, last or first, you know, but okay. Uh, no, but to, to augment maybe what Dr. Bob said, you know, Gamaliel, uh, when they, the apostles were being examined, right. you know, he referenced uh, false messiahs and whatever, so there had to be some 
background of anticipation somewhere, and he said, well, let this play out. If it's not from God, they'll vanish like the others, but if it is, you're, you're fighting against God. Right. He was speaking there of the disciples, proclamation in Jerusalem that God had raised him from the dead and therefore made him both Lord and Messiah. And Gamaliel says, if this isn't from God, it'll peter out, uh, but you don't want to be found opposing God. All right, let's close then with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of the resurrection and for the tremendous importance of it for our Christian lives in terms of hope beyond the grave, filling our lives with significance now, and the wonderful prospect of being delivered from illnesses and infirmities that we bear during this existence here on earth. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a hope through our risen Savior's name we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.